Scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapters 3 and 4, on page 1021. In your pew Bibles, you might recall last week, last Sunday afternoon, we looked at the baptism of Jesus by John. Now we look at his temptation in the wilderness. Only Luke provides for us also the genealogy of Jesus right in between those, which I think should lead us to ask the question why he does that. It's interesting. If you look, verses uh, 3, verse, verse 22, where it speaks of the Father's speech at the baptism of his son could really flow quite seamlessly into chapter 4, verse 1. That's um, how it goes in Matthew's gospel, where the uh, genealogy is placed at the beginning in Matthew chapter 1. And then the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3 flows right into his temptation at the beginning of chapter 4. But Luke rearranges that, which I think should lead us as careful readers of the text to ask why. What is Luke doing in pairing Jesus' genealogy here with his temptation? Read these two passages now together. Boys and girls, you can follow along and uh, make sure that I pronounce all of these names correctly. It says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, he was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, son of Heli, the son of Methat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Meath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanon, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, son of Joshua, son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Methoth, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, son of Meleah, the son of Menah, the son of Mattathah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sirug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be, it will all be yours. 
Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Congregation, the story of Jesus is in many ways a new beginning. Luke has already made that clear. If you remember back in Luke 1 verse 2, when he said that he has written here a narrative of the things about Christ just as those who have done so from the beginning. Luke speaks of the the coming of Christ into the world as as a new start, the the kind of, of beginning of a new creation. And we saw something of that when the Holy Spirit um, hovered over the womb of Mary just as, as he had hovered over the waters of creation. In fact, in that song we sang with the service, it, it sort of links those, um, the, the, the Holy Spirit of, of new creation coming and, and hovering to bring new life. We saw something of that again, the baptism of Jesus, where once again that the Spirit descends like a dove over the waters, that, that dove even recalling the, the new beginning where, remember, Noah's dove flew over the waters of that post-flood new creation. In many ways, Luke has, has been preparing us to see Jesus through the lens of the book of Genesis. Remember, at the very end of the gospel, Luke 24, Jesus gently chides those disciples who were slow of heart to believe everything that was written about him in all the law of Moses, the the first five books of the Bible, and everything throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus, at the end of the gospel, teaches us to read the way that I think Luke is already showing us here from the beginning. He's, He's trying to get us to see these things here concerning Christ through the lens of the book of Genesis which I think becomes even more clear as we come to the passage before us where I want to argue this morning that Luke wants us to see Christ as the second Adam who passes the test that Adam failed. Whereas we sang before the service, the son of Adam in the desert wandered in our curse and woe by the ancient serpent tempted, Christ obeyed where Adam failed. Because Adam got us kicked out of paradise. Notice Jesus doesn't do battle with the serpent from within his own lush garden. But in a desolate wilderness. And yet even with every disadvantage against him, Christ obeys where Adam failed so that the covenant Adam first broke in the garden might be kept by Christ, the second Adam, who earns for us life. And yet by the end of the gospel, we'll die our death so that he might open to us the gates of paradise. This is one of the most important passages in the whole gospel as it sets the context of everything that Christ is going to do as a reversal of the failure of the first Adam. That through this second Adam, we might have life. 
So I want you to look with me this morning at the success of the second Adam, his history, his victory, and then our victory. And first, his history in chapter 3, verses 23 and following, where we see the genealogy of Jesus. And there's, there's a lot that we could say about this. We're, we're not going to try to say everything that we could say about Christ's genealogy, but I want to point out really how this genealogy has at least three main differences from Matthew's. Um, if you look back at Matthew chapter 1, you'll notice, um, first of all, that in uh, Matthew's genealogy, it only goes back to Abraham. It, it doesn't go all the way back to Adam. Notice, second, that Matthew's genealogy actually starts with Abraham, then moves forward to Jesus. And third, the most significant difference is that Matthew places uh, his genealogy at the very start of the gospel. But then as we turn back to Luke and, and look at Luke's genealogy of Christ, we see that, that Luke works uh, backward from Jesus. He, he goes past Abraham all the way to Adam. And he places his genealogy in, in what first appears to be kind of, uh, kind of an odd place. It, it, it appears that it's sort of interrupting the flow of the narrative placed right between Jesus' baptism and his temptation. But all three of those differences, I think, actually work together to highlight the significance of what Luke is presenting. That everything Jesus does, he does as the second Adam. That's Luke's primary purpose in giving us this genealogy. He is connecting Jesus all the way back with the progenitor of humanity, the very first person who ever lived so that he might be qualified to be the savior of all humanity, and so that he might be the head of a whole new race. You see how Luke is here emphasizing that Jesus actually descended from Adam, who we know from Romans chapter 5 and, and from Genesis chapter 2 was the, the head or covenant representative of all humanity by whose fall we sinned all. God viewed all of humanity through its, its representative head, Adam, so that his fall into sin brought curse and woe for all mankind, as we just sang a moment ago before the sermon. And so if Christ is going to save mankind from the curse of death, then he must actually descend from the line of Adam. This is one of the reasons why Modern debates about human origins are, are not incidental, but the salvation of the human race hinges on Christ descending from the same man from whom all humanity traces its origins. Christ comes from the line of Adam to save those who have died in Adam. Luke really wants us to see this. And so he makes Adam, the son of God, the climax of Christ's history. It ends with Adam so as to emphasize Christ as the second Adam. And then once we get to Adam, then flows immediately into Christ's temptation, just like Adam's in the garden. That's why Luke places this genealogy where he does. It's no mere footnote. It's, it's not some obstacle to be skipped over, but is giving us the context in which to understand this next scene. If you've ever watched a movie, maybe before it moves to the next scene, it gives sort of a, a flashback to something prior, maybe even something ancient. That, that's what Luke is doing. As we see this dove-like spirit hover over the waters and descend on Christ, the Son of God, Luke now reminds us of the first Son of God, Adam, 
as if to place Jesus' temptation by Satan side by side next to his. By this connection to Adam and then the the temptation by Satan, we're reminded of Adam's failure in the garden and are led to see Christ's temptation in light of his. Luke is, is taking us by the hand and leading us to compare and contrast the two. And so with that in mind, let's look now in chapter 4 at Christ's victory where Adam failed. And this is where we'll spend most of our time looking at Christ's three temptations where it says that Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And actually, I think we, we, we might read this as 40 days, not just, not just 40 total days of time in the wilderness, but, but 40 days of active temptation of which we read the climactic three temptations here at the end. Christ for 40 days is being tempted. He, he ate nothing during those 40 days. He was hungry. He was weak. Nearing the point of starvation. Remember, we've seen the, the last few sermons This this idea of Christ's real humanity that he really took upon himself, a a real human body that had to grow in stature and in wisdom. We saw in Luke 2, verse 40, and 2, verse 52. That's preparing us for this, that we might know that this hunger is not some phantom hunger, but his real human body that really descended from the real Adam was really nearing the point of real starvation. And it's from this position of weakness that Christ is tempted. And just think about this in terms of yourself. When are, are the times when you are most prone to succumb to temptation? Often it's when we're weak. It's when we're tired. It's when we're hungry. Or when we're lonely. And it's at this precise point that Christ undergoes a 40-day onslaught of temptation by the devil. And now think about this in comparison to Adam. When Adam was tempted, he was in a lush garden paradise with his loving wife by his side. They could eat from every tree in the garden but one. When Christ is tempted, he's in a desolate wilderness all by himself in the last stages of starvation. Um, Adam was in a, a perfect place for human life to flourish and had never known pain, deprivation, or sorrow of any kind. Christ was in a place hostile to human life in a body that was affected by the fall. Christ, we could say, was tempted in a much tougher garden. And yet, where Adam failed, Christ succeeded, though with every earthly disadvantage working against him. He is the successful or victorious second Adam. It was in Satan's first temptation that he tempts Jesus with food. Boys and girls, just like Adam and Eve had been tempted in the garden, remember, to take and eat. And yet where Adam failed, Christ does not. But no, he refuses to be ruled by his appetite the way that we so often are and rather submits to his father's will. He trusts his heavenly father who said in Deuteronomy 8 verse 3, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from my mouth. Deuteronomy 8 reminds us, and we'll look at it this afternoon, that we are to look to God's 
kind provision to sustain us and not to clamor for that which God has withheld in his wisdom. Adam took matters into his own hands as if God was trying to keep something from him. But Christ trusted in his Father's promised provision and did not seek to act independently from him, but trusted him. As we see in this first temptation, then verse 5, Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, I will give to you authority and glory over all of these if you will just bow down and worship me. And so now he's tempting Christ with power in the same way that he told Adam and Eve, you will be like God. You'll be given wisdom and power and glory. And so here he tempts Jesus, the second Adam, again in the same way that he tempted the first. And yet while the first Adam sought to be independent of God, worshiping himself, the second Adam said, no, you must worship the Lord your God and him only. I will not bow down and worship you. I will not seek glory and wisdom and power through false worship. But Christ understood the greater glory that awaited him on the other side of his humiliation. And so again, he passed the test that Adam failed. And then in verse 10, again, Satan does what he did with Adam and Eve in the garden, and he, he takes God's word and he twists it. Remember those, those words, has God really said? And then he, he twists the, the word of God. Here, he, he does something very similar. He takes a part of Psalm 91 that he quotes out of context to try to misuse and get Jesus to jump off the temple, to try to get him to manipulate God and put him to the test. But Jesus will not let Satan misuse God's word, but reading scripture in light of scripture, the way that, that we must do also. He says, no, Satan, that cannot be the right application of Psalm 91, for you know that Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. By the way, the very next verse in Psalm 91 that we sang earlier in our service, just after what Satan quotes, it, it says in verse 13, it says, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent, you will trample underfoot. But notice Satan doesn't quote that verse that doesn't serve his purposes and in fact speaks of his demise. Christ, by resisting Satan's temptation, then ironically fulfills that next verse, trampling the serpent underfoot by resisting his temptation and becoming the victor. That verse is a reference back to Genesis chapter 3 where God promised that the seed of the woman, the second Adam, would trample the serpent underfoot. And ironically, the very psalm that Satan calls Christ's attention to speaks of his demise, and Christ fulfills it already here in part by reading Scripture in light of Scripture and not allowing Satan to use Psalm 91 to make him put the Lord his God to the test. And so immediately after that last temptation, it says that the devil then departed from him until an opportune time. Christ has just fulfilled Psalm 91.13, and he has won this battle. This is Christ's first victory over the serpent to be later completed at the cross where he'll trample the serpent underfoot by not putting God to the test again there and trying to avoid suffering, but rather by entrusting himself to the Father's will even to the point of death on a cross. 
It's quite interesting how each of these temptations of Satan actually try to get Christ to avoid the way of the cross and spurn suffering. Not waiting in hunger, but exploiting his power to fill his belly. Not going the way of the cross and waiting for his kingdom power and glory to the other side of his suffering, but, but seizing power now by bowing to Satan, skipping the cross to seize the crown. And then that third temptation, putting God to the test by summoning angels to keep him from harm. When in fact the very reason why he's come is to die. And at the cross, instead of summoning 12 legions of angels as he tells us that he could have in Matthew 26, enduring its suffering and in so doing, crushing the serpent. Here we see in the temptation of Jesus a preview of the cross where he will not take any shortcuts to glory as the first Adam tried to, but will defeat the devil through suffering, through waiting, through denying himself and trusting his Father. Here Christ succeeds where Adam failed. And so begins his, his defeat of Satan, his conquest of evil. And actually, I think that, that is borne out further as after this first defeat, this, this first victory over Satan, what does Jesus then go on to do so often throughout the rest of the gospel? He, he casts out demons. He exercises that power that he's already shown in this first victory here. This is the champion that we've been waiting for. This is the one promised in Genesis chapter 3 who retraces Adam's steps and and fights the battle that Adam failed to win, defeating our great foe. By the way, he not only um, retraces Adam's steps, but also Israel's. His 40 days in the wilderness after just having passed through the waters corresponding to their 40 years in the wilderness after passing through the waters of the Exodus. Jesus' temptation of, of bread of false worship and of putting God to the test corresponding to their their clamoring about manna, their worshiping of idols like that golden calf, and they're putting God to the test as it says that they do in Exodus 17, verse 7. Each of the ways in which Christ is here tempted, Israel had also failed. They, like Adam, were God's disobedient son. And only Christ comes and uniquely resists the temptation of the devil. He is the true son, unlike Adam and unlike Israel, who perfectly trusts his father's will and resists the temptation of the devil and so becomes our sinless savior, winning for us life. Remember, that's what was promised to Adam in the garden. Disobey and you die. Obey and you earn life. And yet, by the end of the gospel, Christ will die our death. This this passage is Christ fulfilling for us the covenant that Adam broke. God said, obey and earn life, disobey and you die. Where Adam failed, where Israel failed, and every one of us failed, but here comes our champion who perfectly obeys the word and will of our Father. And yet, as we saw last week, in the baptism of Jesus... 
Even though he is the only one who perfectly does God's will, this one is the same one who comes to identify with sinners, to get in line with sinners in a baptism of repentance, foreshadowing that, that time where it says in Luke chapter 12, verse 50, that he will be baptized with a baptism of God's judgment. Jesus comes to earn for us life, but then die our death as he will do by the end of the gospel. And it's in doing all of that that Jesus will open for us the way to paradise. That's what does Jesus say at the end of the gospel in Luke 23 to that believing sinner on the cross. But you will be with me today in paradise. Interesting, that's the same word used in the Greek New Testament, the Greek Old Testament for Eden. Jesus regains what was lost by Adam Life in paradise and fellowship with God. And then he, he takes the penalty that we deserve, dying our death, so that he might give us the blessing that he earned of life in paradise in fellowship with God. This is the gospel of the two Adams. All of us in Adam deserve to die, but Christ, the obedient second Adam, obeys and then takes our curse that we might have life. His perfect record of obedience given to us, our sins placed on him at the cross. You see how this passage is picturing for us the gospel of the second Adam who defeats the devils that instead of remaining in a desolate wilderness of curse and woe, we might be given life. We might be given access back into that garden paradise which the first Adam lost. Christ is our victorious second Adam who comes in the likeness of the first. That's the point of the genealogy, so that he might save us. So that as you trust in Christ and confess your sins, confess your failure to resist temptation the way that he does, and look only to him, that his righteousness might then be given to you. That's the gospel. And Luke is here showing it to us that we might believe it and have life. Remember, he said in Luke 1 verse 4, as he's writing to the office, the reason why I've written this is that you might have assurance of this gospel of grace. He is showing us this here too, that we might believe it and have assurance of it and have life. That we might behold the perfect righteousness of the second Adam and see how he obeyed where every one of us failed thereby earning life, but then willingly died our death and suffered in our place so that all who believe on him might have eternal life in paradise in fellowship with God only because of Christ's perfect righteousness who was victorious over Satan, sin, and death. That's what Luke wants us to see in Luke chapter four. The victorious second Adam. We see his history in Christ's genealogy we see his victory in Christ's temptation. But then his victory also provides the pattern for ours. There's that third point. I wasn't quite sure whether to call it his or um, our victory or, or, or his example. But, but the idea here is that Christ in this victory over Satan that he shares with us by grace also uh, shows us the pattern or, or leaves us an example for the way to our victory over sin and temptation. For if it's true that Christ is the last Adam, 
That's not the point here that Luke is making, but that's what Paul explicitly says in 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans chapter 5. If it's true that Christ is the the second and last Adam, the the savior of all humanity and, and the beginning of a whole new race, if it's true that he is here showing us what it looks like to be truly human as God meant, as the true man, the perfect man, then that means that in Jesus' obedience here, he is also a model and pattern for all who are part of that new race in him. Christ is here our Savior, imputing his obedience to us, granting his victory over Satan, sin, and death also to us. But Jesus also here shows us the truest way to live. One theologian says Luke's portrayal of Jesus as a second Adam invites us to see in his life and in his death a pattern for human faithfulness as God intended from the beginning. It invites us to look to Jesus as a paradigm, a a model for faithful living. That is not at odds with Luke's purpose, but part of it. Jesus, as the second Adam, is the true man who, yes, saves us and is victorious for us, but then he also shows us the way to live in him as the same spirit who empowered him is now given to us. In fact, that was part of of what was so emphasized in that song that we sang just before the service. All mankind fell in Adam's fall, and it it speaks of the fall of that first Adam, the coming of the second Adam who is victorious for us. And then we sang in the last stanza, we thank thee, Christ, that new life is ours. New light, new hope, new strength, new powers. May grace our every way attend until we reach our journey's end, those words that we sang, we were making the point, or being reminded of the point that the same strength and power and grace of the Holy Spirit that was strengthening Christ all throughout his, his earthly life, all throughout his battle with Satan, all throughout his, his learning of the scriptures as a little 12-year-old child in the temple, and his resisting temptation some 18 years later, that same work of the Holy Spirit in him is now given to us. In fact, I was listening to something recently from Sinclair Ferguson about um, John Owen, the, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and, and he makes the point that uh, the emphasis in Luke at the beginning of Jesus' life and ministry on the work of the Spirit in him, that, that part of what Luke is doing there is he's, he's showing us what the Holy Spirit uh, intends to do in each of God's creatures, each of his, his, his image bearers, each of his children to make us likewise obedient like him by the strength of Christ's spirit. And so look at me at just a couple of aspects of, of Christ's obedience here in this passage as a model for us. And that is first how he resists temptation by the means of the word. Boys and girls, three times Jesus is tempted in this passage. And then uh, how many times does Jesus quote the Old Testament? He goes three for three. Each and every temptation he, he faces or responds to by quoting God's word. J.C. Ryle says, let us learn from this single fact the high authority of the Bible and the immense value of a knowledge of its contents. 
Remember, Jesus did not have his ESV app in his pocket on his phone. This is happening, but he had to know the scriptures in his mind and in his heart. And so Ryle says, let us read it, search it, pray over it diligently, perseveringly, unweariedly. Let us strive to be so thoroughly acquainted with its pages that its texts may abide in our memories and stand ready at our right hand in time of need. He's saying Christ's example right here in Luke 4, as it was in Luke 2 when he was just 12 years old, challenges us to be people of the word who hide it in our hearts. He's made that point also with, uh, with Mary and Zechariah and their, their psalms of praise that are just laced almost every syllable with Old Testament quotations. They, they bled Bibline, Spurgeon would say. You poke them and, and Scripture bleeds out. Three times, now four, Luke is showing us in these opening chapters of his gospel the utter necessity of being people of the Word who hide it in our hearts so that when suffering or blessing come, the word of God might be that which comes out of us. Or when temptation comes, that the word of God might come readily to mind. Christ models for us the, the method of victory over temptation by the sword of the Spirit. This reminds us not, not just to, to sort of memorize random Verses, but, but also to understand their context so that we might not misuse them or, or um, become gullible when others try to misuse them, as Satan does. But Jesus teaches us not only to hide the word in our hearts, but to be so familiar with its, its contents and its context that we might not fall to such temptations. Jesus teaches us the surest method of resisting temptation by being people of the word. As we heard Paul say and pray for the Colossians last week in Colossians chapter 1, growing in the knowledge of the will of God by being people of the book. Here in in 4 verse 1 of of, of Luke's gospel, strengthened by his spirit. His spirit, by the way, who, who works in us through the word. And yet notice... But that does not necessarily mean that the Spirit's work in and through Jesus does not necessarily mean that the Spirit is going to lead us away from hardship. But I think another lesson that we see here in, in Jesus is that the Spirit may actually lead us into hardship. We see in this passage, as Luke shows us, the prototypical faithful man, Jesus, that God's purposes for us are not necessarily to lead us away from suffering, but sometimes to lead us into it. As notice, it is the Spirit of God who leads him into the wilderness for 40 days of fasting. And as it is the will of God in the midst of those temptations that Christ will go the way of the cross, not skipping suffering to seize the crown, nor being governed by his appetites, but waiting for God to exalt him. I think we see something here in Jesus about the the, the truth that suffering must precede glory. That the cross comes before the crown. And the same is true of us. That the way of faithfulness is often the way of patience, the way of difficulty. We'll see that same thing this afternoon in our our, um, consecutive psalm reading from Psalm 119. 
Verses 65 to 80, what Christopher Ashe calls the, the adversity gospel. That God teaches us through affliction to love his word and, and to look to his promises and to trust in him. Psalm 119 says it's through affliction that God teaches that. And so perhaps it's not coincidental that here in the temptation of Jesus, we see simultaneously these twin themes of, of suffering and of Scripture. As the psalmist says, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And that through that affliction, the law of your mouth might become better to me than thousands of pieces of gold and silver. Isn't it true that we cling more and more to the word of God through times of affliction? As Ash says, you will not delight in the word above all the wealth of the world until you have been afflicted, until you have felt the fragility of this world, of this age, of this mortal body. But when that happens, you will cling to the word as your only tie to the age to come. It is through times of suffering that God directs us to delight more and more in his word. So we read in Psalm 119, so we see in the life of Jesus, and so God would have us to learn for ourselves that the way of faithfulness often takes us along the road of affliction, which God uses us to, to teach us more and more to love his word, to hide it in our hearts, and to treasure it above everything else. Most of all, because it shows us his son. The one who here in this passage is victorious over sin and Satan. The one who shares his victory with us by grace through faith. Who teaches us that the way to walk in faithfulness like him. And when we fail, as we never will, then pleads his blood-stained hands at the right hand of his father as our advocate. And it's this same glorious Christ that we behold each and every time we open his word, each and every time we gather on the Lord's day to hear it preached. The second Adam who obeyed where every other person in the history of humanity failed, but then dies our death to give us life. It's that same Christ who calls us to walk in the way of obedience that he first walked, strengthened by his spirit and taught by his word. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the victory of Christ over our great foe. How in many ways the whole story of the Bible is uh, pictured in this passage of that one first promise in the garden who comes to defeat our great foe. Lord, we thank you for how he came in the likeness of Adam, assuming our humanity, that he might obey in our place, that he might die our death, and that he might open up to us the way to paradise that was lost in Adam but is now regained by Christ, the second Adam. He was tempted in a much tougher garden, yet succeeded where Adam and we fail so that we might also know that we have a sympathetic high priest 
who was tempted even, even more so than we are because he perfectly resisted. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to look to his strength as we too were tempted. Pray that you would help us to rely on your word. And pray that you would help us more and more to be conformed by the, the study and memorization of that word into the image of this perfect man. We pray in Jesus' name.